0: Welcome, everybody, to another Perceptive Podcast here on the Game Wisdom channel. I am, of course, Josh Blaser, and we got a great cast for you this evening. We have two guests on tonight who are going to be discussing about the concepts of using time as a game mechanic, as well as just its use in design, including a talk about speedrunning. So please welcome back to the podcast, frequent guest, John Brieger. Hi, everybody. And he brought a friend along, a speedrunner as well as a designer. Vincent, how are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me. Doing good. It's great to have you guys both on. We had a little bit of some uh, Discord-related shenanigans. We got them straightened out. Always the fun of uh, messing around with things, right? It yeah, be a that's the thing.
1: challenge, I think, of uh, being a board game designer. You know, <laughs> I have to hop on Discord and everything breaks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: <laughs> We wouldn't but, be streaming if there weren't audio difficulties.
0: Of course not. For my fans watching, of course, they know we've had plenty of audio and internet-related issues when these things go live. It's all good before and then just goes to heck the second we turn things on.
2: Uh, I think that I once
0: streamed for 30 full minutes and was completely muted the entire time. Oh, I've done that, too. <laughs> and now my fans, a. They try to troll me by all of a sudden saying, Josh, we can't hear you when I'm perfectly fine.
1: <laughs> You're just screaming louder into the microphone like someone who doesn't quite know how a telephone works.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Exactly. I just love the, like, the culture of, of live streaming when you say, can you hear me now? And then everybody in the chat just goes, no, we can't hear you.
0: Yeah, that's great. <laughs> But yeah. it's great to have you guys on. As always, Sean, it's a pleasure to have you back on. And it's great to meet you for the first time, Vincent.
1: Thank you. Very much. Nice to meet you. Yeah. yeah, I guess maybe it's helpful for us to talk a little bit about who we are and, mm-hmm. and why we, you know, a little bit why why we're on the show. Uh, I don't know, Vincent, you want to go first?
2: Yeah, uh, yeah sure. So uh, I have been working with John on co-designing uh, a couple games that he's been working on over the last, what has it been now, three years?
1: Yeah, or decades, depending on how you count.
2: <laughs> well, that's true. Uh, known John for a long, long time, since middle school, so mm-hmm. uh, we've been playing games for a long time, designing games for a, a little bit of time. And then when I'm not doing that, uh, I'm speedrunning uh, on Twitch for the most part. And I speedrun one of the games in the Legend of Zelda series, Majora's Mask.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And of course, for the fans watching, Majora's Mask is a really good example of having time as part of the equation when it comes to a gameplay loop.
2: Absolutely. We actually, uh, just in the speedrunning discord the other day, someone was talking about, uh, what if we wanted the game to have seven days? And I I was Mm -hmm. like, well considering you're doubling the amount of time that really has a pretty big impact on the design, I no. think it would be uh, be quite an undertaking to, just to develop the amount of content you'd need mm-hmm. to those,
0: those extra days. For uh, my designer friends in chat right now are watching, this is quarry, I'm sure they can get that done very quickly, right, guys? You can uh, add, f- <laughs> double the content in a Legend of Zelda game.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's fine.
0: It, I'm sure it'll just be super, super easy. Of course. <laughs> And um, as I just said, uh, John, you've been on the cast several times, but for any new people watching, what is your background, kind of role with things?
1: Yeah, Uh, so I'm John Prieger. I am a board game developer and board game designer. Uh, Those roles are a little different in board games than they are in video games. So as a designer, I work on my own games and license them out to publishers. And as a developer, I help uh, clean up games that are coming in from other designers so I run a lot of uh, playtesting programs and a lot of kind of user research and player research. And that's my background. But even before I went into games was running uh, design and design research programs in the Apple retail stores. Yeah. So try to kind of bring in some some things from outside of the gaming industry and ap- apply some of the, the things that designers have learned about making great experiences for people into games.
0: Yeah. And uh, for uh, my fans or people watching the cast right now, our first cast with John, we did, it was all about playtesting and kind of getting the UI and user experience down and how that can be applied to both tabletop and video games as well.
1: Yeah. Um, and that's, that's one thing that's been been really fun about working with Vincent, too, is obviously Vincent's a speedrunner. And so, you know, we, we haven't never done anything digital together but I think there's been a lot of kind of crossover of experience of, you know, especially our, our new project together, Chrono Corsairs is a game about time loops. And mm-hmm. obviously, there's not that many board games about there. So we were pulling a lot more from pop culture in terms of uh, video games, movies, TV, to try to draw our inspiration
0: for how time was going to work. Yeah. And like we said at the start, there's a lot of different avenues when it comes to time that we can certainly draw from or discuss for tonight. And I figured let's start with speedrunning. Then we'll talk about time as a mechanic. We can definitely bring back Majora's Mask for that. And then for like our third and final topic, we'll see if we get there. We'll talk more about your game and how everything kind of links together. Sure thing. So... Uh, speedrunning has definitely been one of the more interesting things that kind of grow out of the video game culture especially over this past decade um, I think like for myself I think like most people watching the first time I got acquainted with that was of course with a, I think it was a GDQ event, I think this was like two, maybe three years ago and then that kind of got me I fell down the rabbit hole of uh, Mario Maker speedruns and then Kaizo games and it's only been a very fascinating way. I think it's a very interesting way of like kind of illuminating some of these titles. And I guess for you, Vincent, besides uh speedrunning Majora's Mask, were there any other games that you speed ran or that you tried to get into?
2: Um actually, yeah, there were definitely some there were some Flash games that I would speedrun. I didn't I didn't even realize I was speedrunning them, but there was something actually inspired from kaizo games there was a cat mario game <laughs> that that existed for a while and it was just a lot of different sort of kaizo style mm-hmm. like hidden blocks and and traps and things like that and just ran on java and the browser and and in college you know in between doing assignments i would just try to finish the game without dying and by doing that <laughs> i was naturally trying to finish it as quickly as i could so yeah. But I've uh, I've been watching speedruns a lot longer than I've been doing them. So I started speedrunning Majora's Mask three D in twenty fifteen, but I've been watching speedruns uh, since way 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 before even GDQ started on uh, the old website Speed Demos Archive. Uh, Pre YouTube, you had to send in a video file; they would host <laughs> it on their servers. Um, and yeah, I I would uh, I'd watch speedruns of of games that i would be playing growing up and things like that just seeing just marveling at 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 how how they were beating the game it it was it's it's not like uh it's not like it's not like normal gameplay at all it's it's a completely different way of thinking
1: and it's really fascinating yeah Yeah. oh and and you've you've Oh, sorry. Uh, so you've also done some some casting and coverage a little bit for, uh, for Games Done Quick, GDQ. Well, yeah, speaking of GDQ, GDQ the too, right? pendants on the
2: back are, are the two events that I went to recently, AGDQ 2018 and uh, SGDQ 2018. Nice. And I was commentating for the Any percent speed run of Majora's Mask 3D uh, mm-hmm. at SGDQ. It was a lot of fun. It's a crazy event. It's grown so big now. It's, uh,
0: yeah. it's kind of... It, it's definitely crazy again just how much this has grown one of my presentations i give is about speedrunning as well and it really did like i think took a lot of people at least in the mainstream market kind of like by surprise to see how it grew like one day you know this was this underground thing the next day two uh, hit and now it's just become a very big part. And as you were saying there, Vincent, like it is such a different way of examining these games. And there's definitely like I'm not sure this may even be too big for our cast tonight, but kind of looking at, equi- looking at what, what you can learn from speed running and applying that to game design is also a very fascinating topic.
1: Yeah, when I I mean I think that's that's a a really good jumping off place too because if and. Uh, You know, I'm I'm interested to get a little more of Vincent's perspective on this, too. A lot of it is that analysis of the game. You know, a Mm -hmm. huge section of your run isn't just your execution of the moves, but deciding your strategy, what Mm -hmm. exploits you're going to use, the path you're going to take through the game. And if you think about a game design as incentivizing players to take paths through the strategy of your game, Mm -hmm. when you have a speed run, you have someone who's not playing the game under the normal circumstances. Every strategic decision is focused on how to get to the end as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And so when you have something like that, you're looking, it's almost like a second game within the game. And so when you have people who are looking to break the game, that can open up really interesting avenues of design space, especially when you're trying to uh, kind of find hidden depths of, of strategy for players to discover. Mm-hmm.
2: no absolutely that's that's exactly where i, I would start when it comes to speedrunning and and game design is that you you really because the game part of uh what a video game does is it tries to immerse you in this world mm-hmm. and part of what speedrunning is, is is really uh looking at it from a different angle and and not seeing seeing exactly what they want you to see but sort of seeing uh how you can take these rules that they've given you and sort of sort of bend them to to your advantage instead. And I feel like uh, that really relates uh, in game design to especially the playtesting process, when you have a game where the rules aren't set yet and you really want people to look at it from that sort of different angle to to see your see your rules and sort of, uh mm-hmm. plumb those depths, see see where it where it goes and, and what they can do. And and that's a uh, Definitely something I've noticed with playtesting games, and and just the way that playtesters think about your game reminds me a lot of how speedrunners think about their games. Mm-hmm. And to your point, Josh, a lot of uh, a lot of the speedrunning happens before you ever turn the game on. You're just uh, you're you're coming up with your route, and you're you're seeing what tricks are available. And, and a lot of the time in speedrunning, I've I've played Majora's Mask for thousands of hours, but a lot of my time. Has been spent uh, just sort of examining the the system that the developers sort of handed off to us, and seeing uh, where what, where the what the limits of that system are, and and trying to see where where I can gain an advantage over the barriers that they put up to for me to have fun. That's why the barriers are there. It's kind of interesting. That's where that's where it's different mm-hmm. uh, with playtesting. You really want to break the game so that you can sort of fix it uh, a lot of the time, but uh, but in speedrunning, when you're when you're trying to break the game, it's it's because you're really trying to create your own fun. So it's sort of uh, they're related but but a little bit different as far as the goals are concerned.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like we were saying, like when you're trying to break this, when you're trying to break the game, you're really almost like looking behind the current. You're seeing the man behind the curtain, matter of speaking, in terms of how this game is applied, and one of the things that I've seen, like, that's become very common when we see, like, a lot of, like, classic game speedruns, especially, like, Notorious games, I know AGDQ has, you know, the bad games block, that's a very weird one to watch, (laughs) is that they'll often comment on that, if you were playing this, you know, sight unseen or for your first time, this game is, you know, a POS, it's horrible, you're never going to figure it out, it's terrible, but (laughs) But for the people who learn these games, as you said, like, get into the details and see what's behind, it becomes a completely different experience. Uh, like, uh, Shark in chat remembers when we tried to play Jaws on stream one night, and just the horror of that game, <laughs> and then I watched someone, like, speedrun it in, like, four and a half minutes, and I was like, how quick it took to beat that.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the... One of the most fun experiences for me watching the GameStone Quick events, the awful games block, is when a game from my childhood shows up mm-hmm. there. Like uh there was a Batman and, and Robin game oh, that was, no. built on the, it was built on the that was built on the uh it was built on the SNES uh Mortal Kombat engine. Mm-hmm. And it was just the worst game of all time. And not only was it not only was the gameplay really awful, but also the, you couldn't tell what to do; like none of the systems were explained to you in any yeah. way. And just watching, watching the two—it was a co-op run, which was great because Batman and Robin,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and watching them just have so much fun with this game that just is utterly makes no sense. And and uh, mm-hmm. and was was uh, just a horrible decision to tie in with a movie that was coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. it was was really uh, really a delight to see. So yeah. it's. We break the games, but we love them. We do. In speedrunning.
1: Yeah. And I think that's that's a kind of an interesting dynamic of when you have a, a co-op speedrun versus a solo speedrun versus uh, when you're kind of speedrunning in, in competition or attempt to set uh, PRs or break records is kind of the incentive of, like, when you think about when you're designing a game as a designer you know a lot of the fun of a game like Zelda is exploration right you're yeah. you're going out and immersing yourself in the world which i think some you said earlier mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and when you're speedrunning uh your your goal is very different right it's co- it's completion mm-hmm. and so if you're speedrunning against someone else you've taken what is a a game that's primarily about exploration and is solo and turn turn it into a competitive multiplayer game where instead the exploration joy is now coming from the how can I find all the exploits, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so you're you're exploring the limits of the games like mechanisms and systems mm-hmm. more than you're exploring the world.
0: Uh, yeah, and like this is like one of the weirdest things about kind of the growth of speedrunning because I'm sure for all those old people watching this right now, we remember kind of back in the late '80s, early '90s when stuff like. Uh, I think it was a show called Starcade. There was, of course, the movie The Wizard. Like, there was this big focus on this idea of what would be considered competitive video game playing. And what they kind of envisioned <laughs> – thank you, for over that uh, – what they kind of envisioned was essentially what speedrunning turned into. You know, how quickly can one to three people beat this game? Who has the fastest time? Who knows the best ways through it? Uh-oh i think we lost john again oh oh john's gone mute oh. no i think he's no, hit, i'm back
2: he's distracted yeah oh, okay um no but that's absolutely right it's as soon as the as from a competitive standpoint before there was a multiplayer game mm-hmm. um there were high scores because they used, there used to be a counter that uh uh, would tell you what your score was and if you had a higher score than someone else, then you were, you were clearly better. Mm-hmm. And then after after the arcade era sort of ended and a little bit into the console home console era, there were some scores for some games. Mm-hmm. but it, it started to become that wasn't recorded anymore. so then it became and it sort of grew naturally in in the you know late 80s, early 90s, like how quickly can you finish the game and that becomes a new metric yeah. of skill. But the interesting thing about it is that it is competitive, absolutely. But uh, it's also very cooperative, and oh, yeah. which again reminds me of, of, of game design, because everybody's everybody's working together. When you find something in speedrunning, you might use it to set a new personal best or something like that. But you're also just so excited to tell everybody what you found, and mm-hmm. record it and document it, and it's um it's actually a really collaborative process to break the game together. It's and it's sort of it's you versus more the the game than it is all of you against each other.
0: Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that, that may be lost on a lot of people who casual look at speedrunning or don't who don't follow that much at The person who gets up on stage and speedruns and you know, they you they mostly didn't figure it all out on their own. It's usually, as you said, a huge group process. Somebody may come up with the trick for, let's say, stage two, somebody else figure out the glitch for, you know, boss three, and then all that gets put together to create the run itself.
2: Yeah, it is it is uh, if you think of like a speedrun as as, as, or a route of a speedrun as as sort of a design, there's there's Everybody's working together, and, and you're always standing on the shoulders of the giants who came before. So,
3: mm-hmm.
2: I when I first started speedrunning Metroid Mass 3D, the world record was like a an hour and forty ish minutes, and now it's close to an hour and twenty. And I've mm-hmm. sort of seen the that process of, of of finding new things and and sharing and. And arguing about <laughs> uh, about routes of what's better, what's faster, and really, really been delightful to see it. And and, and the greatest thing about it, uh, to me, is that it never stops either. Even games that have been around forever, uh, there's there's something new that gets that gets found. Yeah. So a game that's been out for for twenty years old, the original Majora's Mask, they just found a really a really big new discovery. Um, they found a way to to access the the debug menu <laughs> which the developers had left in the game you know in case they needed to to test something out and um and it's been 20 years it's just been sitting there all along and they finally found a way to to sort of get there <laughs> and uh, it's just completely changed the way that that speed run is run yeah. and it's really really kind of an exciting uh collaborative process it's it's
1: yeah and that's one they found if i'm not mistaken by they like decompiled the code right it wasn't just they you know accidentally stumbled (laughs) into it
2: um it was it was yeah so it was based off of a trick they knew how it worked uh in in the game's code for for a long time they'd been using it for something else for a really long time Mm -hmm. um without getting too deep into the weeds uh, you're basically incrementing a counter up one at a time, uh, and someone came up with a radical idea of what if we did it like thousands of times? Uh, could we could we get to this part of the code that we know exists, the debug menu, if we uh, if we did this if we repeated the same process and incremented this counter uh, up until up into the, the thousands and uh, sure enough, it worked. but uh, then the then the race was on to find a way to do it that didn't require literally doing the same series of actions, uh, thousands of times for for several hours of gameplay. Um, and they did, but it's uh, sometimes that happens in speedruns, You look at the you look at the actual code of the game itself and you you have a desired result. And you have a mechanism that you think can get there and then you you do some tests and it works but frequently it's it's also just playing the game and um and trying to trying to do two things at the same time or or very regular sort of bug testing and and you realize that you've you've unlocked something that can save lots (laughs) and lots of time for everybody
3: Mm
0: -hmm. and uh, as like, talking about the idea of, like, breaking video games, that brings up, I think, a very interesting topic that I won't get uh, both of your thoughts on as well as the chat. Like, when we talk about speedrunning, there's always, there's, I think, two very broad categories, you know, glitch versus glitchless runs. And both require a, a different understanding of the design as well as a like, different kind, of, a different way of playing it. And I just want to ask, like, for everyone watching and for you guys as well, do you have a preference for the types of runs either you like to do or like to watch? So, glitch versus glitchless. Um,
2: I mean, it's actually it's actually quite a controversial uh, conversation okay. in the, the speedrunning space because it uh it comes to this heart of this idea of what is a glitch. Um, yeah, and it's a little bit uh <laughs> it's a little bit messy. What is what is a bug? What is a feature? Um and it's, there, there have been community arguments. There have been huge splits mm-hmm. in, in certain communities over, over what is a glitch and what isn't. So when you talk about speedruns, the cleaner category, the 80% glitched category, mm-hmm. its rules are, are pretty clean because just everything, anything goes. Um, and so I, I like, I like that because it's, it feels a little less arbitrary, but I do enjoy watching, uh, glitch glitchless speedruns. I just I just don't love the name so much. I think if you if you called it something like bug limit or just sort of acknowledged that like <sighs> glitch glitchless is you're doing or or if you could, if you just separated it. So you're just instead of glitchless, like there's no glitches, you just call it glitchless because that's really more of what you're doing. What what gets allowed and what doesn't get allowed it, it becomes so messy <laughs> that uh really but what it what it is at its heart and what I really appreciate is is it's about trying to find the fun again, because sometimes the any percent category, uh, like I said, you do something that's kind of silly in order to beat the game faster and, and you lose some of the fun that way. And so Mm -hmm. I do enjoy watching it and performing some categories that put a different arbitrary restriction on your play.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, I mean, the the what what is and is not a glitch is you know even a run in which in which most games i think are not glitching the player is still in no way really playing a game it's not like watching someone do a playthrough of the game in which they're doing it very quickly they're still fundamentally ignoring large sections of the game Mm
2: -hmm. oh absolutely uh all the glitches speedrunners will will tell you the comments on their YouTube videos of their, of their runs are like, you still cheated the game. Like <laughs> you have to do this in this order. You're cheating, uh, which is always, always very amusing. Um, but it's, uh, it's your, the, the gameplay goals of a speed run versus a person just playing a game for uh, enjoyment, the way that it's intended uh, are so different. Even a glitchless speed run is, is still a speed run.
0: And uh, for you, John, which one do you prefer? you have a preference for
1: when you watch? So, yeah. So, I, I only watch speedruns. I, I do not speedrun myself. Um, I would say I I think the, the runs I actually enjoy watching the most are, like, very odd, restricted runs. Like, um, like two players, one controller, <laughs> or, you know, uh, players playing one-handed, or, uh, you know... Pacifist runs where you're not allowed to kill any enemies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, like those, those kinds of uh, arbitrary, maybe isn't quite the right word, but unusual restrictions, I think, help bring out creativity in the, in the kinds of runs. And I think they, they help lead to really ridiculous moments. Uh, and, and that's kind of what I like to see, especially, uh, for something like a games done quick event where you have a commentator who can help explain what's going on in the run to someone like me who's maybe not as familiar with the details of the game.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah um, Shark's been uh, bullying me about trying to do like a blind run of a game like when they do like the punch out games, blindfolded, mm-hmm. which is just crazy to me.
2: Oh yeah. Um, blindfolded pun- blindfolded punch out is always entertaining. A few years back at GDQ. They did uh, two games, one controller. Mm. Uh, both both the SNES <laughs> version of Punch out and the and the original NES version of Punch out were being played. <laughs> At the same time on the same controller, uh, and that was a really that was a really fascinating run. There's a lot of fun things you can do with Punch Out. That's quite a quite a fun game in the in the speedrunning world. It's it's you play when you're speedrunning. You play the game so many times. You're like, I know this game like the back of my hand. I could easily do blindfolded, and then you put the blindfold <laughs> on. And you're like, I have no idea
0: where I am right now. <laughs>
2: Someone help! I need to use my echolocation to find out.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's just interesting about how all these different categories have really come about and what that means in terms of playing these games now i guess taking this further more into design wait okay, <laughs> to a sphere on dark controller yeah sure yeah let me do that one next uh, taking this back to design uh one thing i wanted to quickly touch on, as we've said before about this idea of breaking the game, I think uh, you were saying this earlier, John, about kind of, like, the different kinds of fun there is when you're playing a game casually versus doing a speedrun. But as we said, like, when, like, from a design standpoint, you're not... Most designers aren't thinking about their games in terms of speedrunning. With maybe the exception of you put, like, a speedrun timer or a speedrun mode. And for both of you, like, what do you think about this, I, and I think, Vincent, you said this as well, like people saying, you know, oh, you cheated the game where you broke the game. <laughs> like, what do you think about the idea that is speedrunning a game considered, I guess, quote unquote, fun? Like, is it or is it like breaking the experience? You know, kind of like, I guess, like the person who spoils a movie or, you know, who doesn't get scared like at horror, you know, kind of like bringing it down for everyone else.
2: Uh, I'm kind of in two two mindsets of this mm-hmm. um, because I don't think I could play Majora's Mask 3D mm-hmm. uh, normally again. I don't think that. So in that sense, the game is kind kind of broken for me. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't. I don't think I could force myself to to play it like I played it the first time casually again, knowing what I know. Um,
3: mm-hmm.
2: But. And and going back to your point about like designing your game for speedrunning, you're starting to see this more. And more. speedrunning has become bigger. Designers will start thinking about the speedrun of their game, mm-hmm. um, and and maybe trying to. I've seen some recent development work uh, where the developers are talking a lot with with speedrunners about uh, features they'd like to be left in the game and things like that. And it's it's an interesting it's an interesting idea. But I, what I think is so great. About um, speedrunning is that it's it's at the end of it takes place at the end of the design process. So when you're when you're designing a game, everything can change at any time. You really, I mean, you have your core ideas and you know you know what you're you know what you're chasing after, but at the same time, you know you could you could take the the core, you could take the gameplay and flip it on its head and, and, and it would still be the same design project. But, uh, the great thing about speedrunning for me is that it is, it's what we've been given at the end and it doesn't have to change and it doesn't, didn't have to be designed to be speedrun. Mm-hmm. It's just you, you're taking, we're, we're taking what you, we're taking the game box that you gave us at the end and we're, we've played it and we love it and we, we want to play it forever. And so we're just going to we're to continue to find the fun in the game.
1: Yeah. And I think there's a there's a really good concept that I like um, for talking about uh, kind of play in general, which is the, the idea of the magic circle. And this is kind of like the, the shared set of rules that we've all bought into. And you see this when you see like little kids, you know, playing like, you know, doctor or cops and robbers. And you see it in... In video games, of like what is what is acceptable behavior. Uh, so, a lot of kind of solo single player video games, uh, the the concept that most players have bought into when they're buying the game is that they are there to uh, experience the story and maybe progress their characters, and they're going to do that relatively linearly in the the way that the developer has laid that story out for them and i think in in many ways speedrunning is kind of breaking the magic circle or shifting its window uh, a little outside of the original developer's intent uh, to change the goals of of the game and so some developers are saying that's fine i'm gonna i'm gonna make my game the way i'm gonna make it uh and then i think there's also a, a school of thought which is if I know that people are going to play my game this way, can I amp up the fun or encourage people or use the fact that people mm-hmm. are going to do this to bring them in? And so, you know, one of the things that I know, uh, I can't remember if we talked about it last, last time it, uh, fascinate me as a, a board game designer, uh, are roguelikes. And I think roguelikes are a really interesting case for speed running because yeah. some of them have ends and some of them can potentially go on forever. Uh, and they the modern indie community has really embraced them as a way to uh ship games faster because they're procedurally generated and you don't necessarily have to build as much content and so i th- i see a lot of developers in that space starting to look at especially like what is the streamed experience of my game look like mm-hmm. what does the speed run of my game look like what do some like even specifically things like uh uh, building in things like pacifist mode and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. into the core of the experience with the knowledge that people are going to stream the game, that people are going to speedrun the game. And because the core loop of that game is so simple, they can really hammer in on some of those points. Yeah.
0: And we've seen many independent developers have like integrated Twitch or streaming functionality and even allowing players to, or having the stream audience affect the game, like having that built into it, which is a its own other like fascinating topic, as well as this idea of, I know if Shark is still watching this, we've been talking about having a talk on uh, the idea of quote-unquote stream-friendly games, or designing games around the YouTube and streaming communities of today. And, yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, I
2: mean... Hmm. It's and it, it leads to some really interesting areas of game design. I, there's that uh survivor style show where it's, it's like a game show your Twitch viewers are, are, are voting on who who to who to support and who not to support. And uh it it's changing what's happening in the game and it, it, it is interest and it's I think it's smart of developer or designers to to think about their audience always. As board game designers, I know John is always thinking about you know who who's playing this game hmm. and uh, and what what do they find fun and it's it's hard to sort of live inside
1: someone else's head. Yeah. Um, but we, I know they do their best.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, and then the other thing with speedrunning is uh, playing the same game, uh, especially a single a single player experience over and over and over again. Yeah. And that's a behavior that is not necessarily common. Uh, so for, especially for an exploration or story-driven game. And so that's a, that's another one that I see when, uh, you know, we have our, our times. I'm obsessed with time loops. I, they're like one of my favorite concepts in <laughs> pop culture and media. And the idea that when you, when you restart a narrative game, right, you're in a time loop. And part of the fun of a game is learning and mastering its systems. And when you go through that single player progression if you're playing a game normally, as you typically as you go through the game, you're going to get better at it, right? Mm-hmm. And then speedrunning is kind of that almost taken to extreme. Now you're restarting the whole game and using an entire playthrough of the game to get better at the game. Mm-hmm. And I think roguelikes in many ways because when you die, you know, there's typically some sort of permadeath or or reset, your ta- part of the fun is coming from that learning experience, right? okay, I did something wrong. Let me reset and do it again. And I think people are kind of embracing that model of, of learning through, through failure or, or learning through completion and saying that, uh, completion is only step one on my, my kind of learning journey on the the systems of this game. And that's very different from a purely exploration driven, uh, type experience.
0: And I think as you said there, it's kind of moving that magic circle into kind of like it's a different perspective. Um, Like for myself, earlier this year with Resident Evil 2, I beat the game, you know, first run and it took me like 10 hours. Very first, completely blind. And then I saw, oh, there's a reward if you do it at the S-plus rating. So I watched some videos, I played through a few more times, and I finally got down to, I think, a two-hour run on that game to get the S-plus reward. And... again, like, at that point, point. I want to go back to something what Vincent said a few minutes ago, at that point playing Resident Evil 2 was different than when I first played it. And not only was it a completely different experience, but you know, I purposely ignored a lot of the aspects of the game because I already knew it. Like, why should I be worried about a jump scare in this part of the place where I'm never going to go there again because I know my run through and as we were saying earlier Vincent I wanted to bring this up that once you start thinking about a game that way you can't really unring that bell you can't go back to playing a game casually after you spend spent 500 1,000 hours trying to become the best at it and I I wanted to bring John into this point Like as we've talked about before when it comes to playtesting and understanding the user experience like one of the reasons why this kind of stuff is considered very underrated for a lot of developers is the fact that most people don't think about games along those lines. We've said this many times over that if you do it right, nobody will say anything at all. You mess up, you will never hear the end of it from the consumers and reviewers. Oh, yeah. Uh
3: huh.
0: Um Yeah, and and I think
1: that's one thing that is Uh, You know, going back to how long is that that loop of if you have a game that's, you know, 30 hours to complete uh, your first first play of the game or that's Mm -hmm. what's expected, you even if players really enjoy it, they they the majority of people are never going to finish. But even the people who finish may never play it again. And Mm -hmm. so that's one thing when you're talking about some of these games that are designed for this repetition They typically are going to have a shorter session length uh, to finish that core content, Uh, right? That games, uh, Oscar's coming. Most Mm -hmm. people consider games as one and done. Um, You know, if you want to design a game, that's going to have that kind of replayable loop and learning experience, you have to condense that core session length. Mm -hmm. And so, That's something on the board game side that's really interesting because obviously uh, there are very, very few board games that have as much content as a single player video game. Uh, Most board games uh, that are, you know, a typical kind of family strategy game is between 30 and 60 minutes. A quick party game might be 15 or 20. And almost no one is buying games that are played a single time. They're almost the, the whole a lot of the goal is to kind of hook people and have them play multiple short sessions. So the games that are these long content based games have had uh, tremendous difficulty in figuring out what's the correct amount of content to put. Uh, how do we progress players from one game to the next? How do we keep players coming back from multiple sessions? Because that pattern of play is very uh, common in a video game. People generally buy a board game expecting to be able to play it over and over again, even if they don't, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so people will play, and if they feel like the game can't be replayed, even if it can, will be upset. Yeah. Uh, and so we see things like Charterstone is a game from Jamie Stegmaier, uh that is a what we call a legacy-style game. Uh, the idea that each time you play, you make permanent changes, uh, like ripping up cards or putting stickers on the board— uh, that are going to permanently affect the state of future plays. Hmm. And so in that game, uh, he was pulling his audience. He has a very big community following. And uh, he decided very early that he was going to make a lot of units of a reset pack that would allow this game that was intended as a one-time experience that you hmm. play over, I believe, 11 games to be reset and played hmm. again and again uh, uh, or played a new set of 11 games. Okay. And based off of what people claimed they wanted, he printed, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of these reset packs. Uh, but the majority of people finished this experience and said, Well, I don't want to replay this. And so uh, he had to, you know, warehouse clearance, some, I believe, <laughs> and and some had to be pulped, though, don't quote me on that, uh, that just there, they were sitting there completely unused, because what people claim they wanted out of the experience was very different than the actual play pattern that they observed after they bought and played the game.
0: Yeah, and that I think is its own topic in of itself. That idea of the customer's unique experience with a the game. There's one of the things that we saw, and this is probably its own tangent right here. That we saw a lot of Telltale's games during their heyday with The Walking Dead, Wolf Among Us, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that they're built around you know, you can replay this game, get all these different choices. But I think the vast majority of people play through it once, because as you were saying there, John, like they got. Their quote, their quote, unquote experience, and then you know going back over that almost seems like kind of erasing what they just did.
2: Yeah, and I'm not yeah. sure how complex the reset pack was either. I mean, imagine for a legacy game, depending on how many stickers and things are involved, mm-hmm. it's uh, it might not have been that bad. Mm-hmm. It might have just been cards to uh, to add back in and things like that. But, um, but part of the idea of, of replaying like a telltale style game is just going through Mm -hmm. everything you had to go through to get to that point at the end. And and most players didn't really want to make it there or to get back to change that one little choice in the middle. Mm
1: -hmm. And yeah. Go ahead. And, and I think some of it too is, is perception of what, you know, kind of framing expectations if people uh, for tel- especially for telltale, right If people view the primary value of the game as the the story and discovery of those moments in the story or the you know the jump scares in a horror game, that lowers their even even if when they go to replay it they have very they would have a very different experience. They perceive as I've experienced the story of this game and now I, I've seen it all. I don't I don't need to see it again. Whereas uh, when you have something, let's say, for example, like a, a competitive multiplayer card game or a competitive shooter online, mm-hmm. uh, people might play that uh, campaign mode or the solo mode for those games. And then the replay value is going to come in taking the the skills and mastery that you've learned by playing that solo experience and applying them into uh testing your skills against other players, and then that can be a, a near-infinite replayable game if you if you master that multiplayer competitive experience.
0: Yeah. And, like, that right there has been one of the major reasons why many developers have moved to multiplayer-based experiences for their games, and why there was that brief scare, I think it was late 2018, early 2019, that single-player games were dying. Because for the majority of people, as you said, that the story or the first time experience is considered to be the only thing for that game why should i replay this game that i just spent 30 hours on you know i only need to get better at you know the story is not going to change if i beat this game in 10 hours versus 30 or you know an hour instead of 10 and like in a weird way like speedrunning has kind of like shown people that there is more that you can do more with a game than just play it from beginning to end.
2: It really is uh it's it's going back all the way to the beginning. It's just a different goal, it's a different mm-hmm. experience completely. You're you're not you're not playing the same game again, and you really can't ever go back to playing
3: yeah. the
2: same game again. Just like even in, in the board game space, I was going to say, like legacy games did this crazy thing of of saying when you open the box the second time it's not going to be like the first time you open the box. But I would I would argue that that's already a little bit true. The second time you play Settlers of Catan, you're not going to place mm-hmm. your settlement on like the sheep uh, sheep <laughs> and and stone spot because you you realize that that's not going to get you anywhere. And so every time you
3: mm-hmm. would
2: replay a game, it's it's going to be different as well.
1: Yeah. And, that, and I think that's one of the things that intrigues me about, uh, you know, games that have these these kind of tight loops is coming in the board game space, right? When that reset and learn pattern is really is, is how a lot of the progression gets done, especially in, when you have a, a shorter session length or even a longer session length game, you know, an hour and a half strategy game. Part of the, the joy is you play it once. You're like, okay, well, the next time I, I play, I'm going to try a different strategy. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the game that Vincent and I designed together that's coming out in November, Chrono Corsairs, mm-hmm. is a game about time looping. And a big part of what I feel is part of the appeal, and maybe this is just me because I'm a game designer and I'm weird, <laughs> is that because the game is a time loop inside one session of the game, you're going to loop and reset and have that learning experience, uh, you know, mm-hmm. five, you know, five, six times during the course of the game. Uh, and so you don't need you. I mean, the game is is very replayable. And it's going to be very different each time you play. But you get some of the joy of, OK, I tried this strategy. Now I'm going to try a different strategy and see how it works out for me. And you get to have that moment of picking your strategy multiple times, even during a single session of play
0: yeah and I think uh, John and I may be kindred spirits on this I'm also like I love like time in the, time manipulation time loops you know as like a device or as some kind of like gameplay related element to it obviously I think a big name example would be something like Braid from John and Blow but yeah. I gotta ask you guys I'm gonna throw like, a little game design pop quiz at you uh, did either of you play a Breath of Fire Dragon Quarter for the Playstation 2 I did not. No, I have actually
1: never had a PlayStation, so I am sorely lacking on Guess. kind of all the PlayStation-exclusive <laughs> games.
2: Uh, well, I mean, I owned a PlayStation 2, but it had a huge library, so I never never came across Breath of Fire.
0: Uh, uh, the reason why I bring that up is that was one of the... Oh, man, that may be like the f- one of the first games other than something like Chrono Trigger... Hello, uh Rat's Tale. Uh, one of the first teams sites Chrono Trigger to explore the idea of a time loop. It was kind of like a quasi roguelike. where every time like your character stats or basic things would become persistent. And the whole game basically took place in its own little loop that every time you die, time resets back to when you began, but your character would be regaining power. And I think Elgardo or Oscar and Chad and I were talking about this, that the team who did that Went on to make Dead Rising. And Dead Rising was another game that explored this idea of, and it was a three day time loop that you could restart the game, but you'll be stronger and more powerful. And, like, taking this back to this idea of roguelikes as well, that the roguelike genre is just very fascinating in that regard. Because John was mentioning a few minutes ago regarding kind of tightening up that feedback loop or the gameplay loop. That a roguelike, and Shark as well, uh, that uh, a roguelike may have like 50 to 100 hours of content, but in a, a single loop of that game may only be 30 to 45 minutes at most, as people who've watched us play The Bion of Isaac certainly can attest to.
2: Absolutely. Roguelikes really have that type tight loop uh i got stuck in an ftl loop for (laughs) close to 80 hours um and it didn't feel like hardly any time had passed at all because um there there is something about that experience of starting over that is uh that is really appealing in 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 some senses so you see you see it a lot in the video games uh obviously the whole genre of roguelikes uh, embody that idea of starting over but Breath of Fire Dead Rising um, I remember Dead Rising I think I played Dead Rising 2 that, that sort of same idea as Majora's Mask where you have just three days to to get out of the zombie infested town you have to do everything you need to do to get out or do as much as you can um, uh, but uh in Majora's Mask, the, the loop is, is, is sort of delightfully tight, mm-hmm. uh, taking us back all the way back again to the idea of like, what if we extended the loop from three days to seven? Mm-hmm. Um, part of the, part of the sort of quote unquote failure state of a game that's based on a time loop is, is, is running out of time. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. you, uh, uh, the entire dungeon structure is designed around that three-day time limitation. You, you get so far, you learn about what the dungeon has in store, and then you realize, oh, I'm out of time, I have to go back to the start. And then you it takes you less time to get back there for, for one reason or another. You've, you've gained some sort of item or, or just the knowledge of what to do to get back to that state. And so you get there faster the next time. But um, it's really... Uh, it's fascinating in 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 the mm-hmm. sense of Majora's Mask, just how important running out of time is in that mm-hmm. time loop. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's really something we we tried to to capture in in Chrono Corsairs, where you 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 only have a limited amount of time to to do what you're doing
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, on the island before you have to start over again. So that that the way, how you spend your time becomes mm-hmm. becomes very important, and you and you learn things as you go. It's,
1: yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's the thing is I think people people see the restrictions and this is this is, I think, true of almost any restriction you're going to give a player. And when they butt up against the restriction, they they say, "Ah, oh, this is constraining me. Um, I don't like it. But, uh, and Oscar's pointing this out in the comments too, a lot of games really only work because of those restrictions they put on you. Yeah. Uh, the strategic decision, and I know people don't necessarily think of a game like Dead Rising or Majora's Mask as a strategy game, but if you imagine the strategy of how do I spend my time during right. that loop, right? that's That's a strategy of what am I going to learn? What am I going to uncover? And... That decision of that I don't have an unlimited amount of time to explore, I have to pick how I'm going to spend my time is really, really important uh, in making these games challenging and interesting and making you want to come back to play again. Because if you had an infinite amount of time, what you think is, ah, well, I would keep exploring and explore everything. But what you would do instead would actually you would explore some stuff and you go, ah, I'm bored. Whereas when you when it forces you to stop, mm-hmm. then you go, ah. Oh, well, now I have to try something different next time. Yeah.
0: And uh, to Oscar's point, chat about the or 2 as well. Like that's always another really big point is that if you give the player all the options, it may either A, break the game or B, overwhelm them. They may not have any idea, okay, if I can super jump, super fly, invisible, one hit kill everything, you know, is there even a point in playing this game anymore? (laughs)
2: I got that way on dishonored one when I could freeze time, <laughs> have the extended blink, and the last level was just like nobody saw me, nobody heard me nobody was it's like I was never there i'm like this is this is kind of fascinating and and what was great about dishonored was that the pacing of that was really good. the progression was was well paced, so I was finally at the end game when I was sort of that that powerful, mm-hmm. but um when that's when that pacing isn't quite right, it can feel really, uh, mm-hmm. like what, what is the point? Why, why am I, why am I even here?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's the thing is, so you can definitely have too much of a good thing in terms of progressing players too far in terms of their advancement or giving them too many options. And that isn't to say, you know, and Oscar's put, putting great stuff in this chat right now, uh, so he uh, said uh, uh, just to summarize for people who aren't reading the chat live, uh, there's an argument about having all the options available versus letting people freely mm-hmm. experiment. And I think one of the things that we, we talked a lot about in the speedrunning discussion earlier is the idea of experimenting and breaking and pushing the limits of a system. Mm-hmm. And so in speedrunning, that those, those limits of on options are how you get to experiment because you're experimenting within those constraints. And so I think in many ways those uh, those constraints help breed creativity for people to experiment. And obviously, if you constrain it too tightly, you have like a you have a cutscene, right? It's uh pr- you know press press A to continue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you've got you, uh, <laughs> you got to figure out you know you can't you can't narrow the players in too far, and you have to give them enough room to find their strategy and yeah. and find their their path. But if you give them unlimited room, uh. They they won't feel as much like they've they've earned anything or they've been creative,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so and maybe maybe they'll find their own pattern and find their own goals, right? Uh, so I mean, and there are certainly games that are like that as well, like a, a Minecraft style of like. Well, there is a goal that helps you win the game, but very people very few people play Minecraft to win, mm-hmm. and so you, I think if you're going to design the kind of game that's just that open ended you really have to be aware that that's the kind of game you're making. And you can't make a game that has an end and then decide, oh, actually, I'm going to make it completely open-ended.
0: <laughs> yeah. And there's actually two points I want to go from there. The first one, I think this is a very important consideration. As we talk about with roguelikes and having their own kind of eternal time loop to them, one thing that I think it's very important from a design standpoint is the difference between... The player having to restart the game versus kind of the game forcing the player to restart. And what I mean by that for people who don't normally play roguelikes is that there are some roguelikes out there that have that kind of legacy or persistent element to them. And they're designed in a way that you literally can't beat the game on your first go. You simply don't have the stats, you don't have anything, and there's no way you're going to do that unless you, you're basically required to replay that game. Versus, a, say, a roguelike like the Bion of say where you have to restart from scratch, but every run has like the capacity to go in wild directions. And this is one of the things that was very polarizing. I don't know if either of you played the game Rogue Legacy that came out a few years ago. That was one of the more controversial points about that design.
2: Uh, I did not play Rogue Legacy, but I did hear... About that, and that is a uh, that is a really fascinating idea of 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 sort of forcing the player to to replay by by making it just actually impossible for them to complete the game on the first loop, uh, either by luck. Because I know mm-hmm. that there's there's a certain degree of luck to games like Bi- Binding of Isaac and
3: mm-hmm.
2: and FTL where you can complete the game on your first loop, uh, versus versus Rogue Legacy where it was it was virtually impossible to finish the game in, in your, in a single loop.
1: Um, yeah. And, and I think part of that is, uh, and we've talked about the player perception thing, uh, people perceiving a game as being fair, right? Mm -hmm. Players want fairness, even when game, even when they enjoy things that aren't fair. So as long as they perceive that the game is fair, then they won't complain. And so people see a game that is unwinnable as unfair, even if it's really the they even if the game could have just been so difficult that they were incredibly unlikely to win and 95% of players wouldn't win on their first run anyway the yeah. fact that it's that that take from 95% to 100 uh i think rubs some people's sense of
0: fairness the wrong way and of course don't forget about RNG as well and everyone's love yeah. that you know, 95% chances can still miss.
3: <laughs> yep. Uh.
0: Uh, now, uh, as a quick uh, time check, we are just around 8.30 my time. We've been going for about an hour. I know we set around a stop point for 9 o'clock. So, um, I guess, do either of you have any topics or any points you want to bring up about you know time as a game mechanic, time you know as part of the gameplay loop. If not, we'll move on to talking more about your game. But for the chat watching, if you have any questions for us, please feel free to leave them in the comments below.
2: Uh, yeah, actually, just one more point mm-hmm. uh, off of off of John's point about fairness and, and time loops in games. Uh, a sort of controversial change that was made in the Majora's Mask remake was the implementation of a of a save feature. In the original game, you couldn't save and then quit and come back yeah. later to to pick it back up. You had to actually reset the loop every time in order to save. If that was the saving feature. Mm-hmm. you'd reset the loop and that would save your save your game state, but obviously it would take away all the things that left when a loop reset. Um, and so a lot of players felt that that was unfair, that they mm-hmm. should, they should be allowed to save the game and, and, and put it down and come back to it later in the state that they left it. And when they did the remake of the game, they implemented uh, a saving feature. And in, in my opinion, it, it sort of like the consequences of that changed the game completely. All of a sudden, you didn't need to reset the loop as, as often because if you didn't like, how the latter half of your loop went you could go back to that early state and do it again from from that sort of point in time instead and uh, just sort of the consequences of of giving players what they feel is fair and, and how, it, how it really changes the entire design time uh, as we're trying to say in this, in this whole show has a huge impact on on the design of a game if you let it
1: mm-hmm. yeah and that's a, that's a lot of, I think the, the psychology too, of, of how safe are you? Right. Uh, so, uh, and there's been way, way, way more in depth things written on me about us, uh, that, you know, spacing of save points or checkpoints within a, within a game or, uh, you know, or can you save it all? Is there permadeath? What progresses forward after you die, mm-hmm. et cetera, is really interesting because it plays with your investment in your current uh, game state. So the safer you are on, uh, you know, the, like I'm 20 seconds of my progress will be reset. If I, if I die or if I fail, then uh, that creates a very different mentality in terms of what I'm willing to risk. And when things are danger, how do I feel About uh, the stakes, right? Am I invested in the fact that my character dying is bad if I can reset without penalty? And so that's Mm -hmm. where you have to figure out what's the kind of experience and what's what's the kind of emotion you want players to feel at specific moments during your game, and understand how to pace your your saving or checkpointing uh, either system or or where those are in your game's length Mm -hmm. to uh, to drive those emotions, because if you players are going to play a boss fight very differently, if, uh, when they restart, they start right at the very beginning of that boss fight, then mm-hmm. if they restart five minutes before it, right, there's, yep. those are very different psychological things in terms of progress. Uh, when you're, when you as a designer are designing the, the kind of pacing of saving states within your game.
0: Yeah. And like that is like its own discussion right there. Especially like uh, people who watch me know that when I play ARPGs, I play on hardcore difficulty because I find those games too boring if I can just slam my guy or, you know, just keep rushing into a fight, die, restart, and just does it again and again and again. And. It's just, a, as you said, John, it's such a different feel and different weight on the player when they know that instead of losing 20 seconds of time, I could be losing 10 hours of building this character. Mm-hmm. But I know yeah. uh, you guys do have to get going in a few minutes. And again, we could sit here and chat, you know, four or five hours. John is well aware of how long these casts can go. <laughs> so. Uh, with that, let's talk briefly about your upcoming game, and then we'll wrap things up there. So let me pull up some of the images that you sent me, and I'll switch the uh, UI or switch things over here. All right. So I guess for both you guys, what is uh, Chrono Cors- Corsairs? There we go.
2: Johnny, want to take this away?
1: Yep. Uh, So Chrono Corsairs, uh, which is coming out in at the end of November from Tasty Minstrel Games or TMG, Mm -hmm. is a strategy board game in which you are pirates who have crashed on a cursed island and you're living the same day over and over again. And that is going to drive your exploration of the island and your uh, competition with the other pirate crews for treasure And so, some of the types of treasure, uh, like doubloons, you're are going to have to spend, and uh, they'll reset at the end of a loop. You know, if you don't spend them, they're just they're just gone. And then, some of the types of treasure, what we're calling uh, time gems, uh, you're going to get to keep loop from loop. And as the game progresses, you're going to uncover more of the mysteries of the island, and you're going to understand a little bit more about your opponent's plans within a given day, and be able to react and change your own strategy within the game. Uh, So we took a lot of inspiration from kind of popular culture, uh, time looping movies and TV to look at what are the things that we wanted to show about the process of learning a loop over and over again, especially when it comes to competing with other players and uh, understanding I think a lot of time loop movies are kind of people versus environment. And so that dynamic is very different when you have competitors who are going through that loop with you.
0: Hmm. And as you were saying earlier, John, regarding the fact that it's not just that you're looping like from one play of the game to the next, but you're actually having looping during the play of the game. Like, uh, how? Like, what is the difference in terms of like how those two de- – how those two actions play out for the player.
1: Uh, Vincent, you want to talk a little bit about this?
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So um, at the, at the end of each sort of turn, you'll, you'll reset all of your pieces back to the start, but on things that have happened on the island, these events, uh, you'll, you'll know where they're going to happen at one time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you can now use that to your advantage to sort of plan your next day, but we are really sort of uh, uh, emulating starting a game over again from scratch by by moving all of your pieces back to the to the starting position. So just the same yeah. way that you don't play another strategy game the same way the second time you play it, when you start your second uh, turn in or your second day in in Chrono Corsairs, you uh, you know a little bit more, so you're going to play out the day a little bit differently. You also there's uh, other forms of progression. You you get to change your plans around, and you get to upgrade your crew with the doubloons, like John said. Yeah. Um, and so there is there's a it's it's sort of like starting the game over, but you, there is in game progression that is still occurring. That's a little bit different from starting a game over from scratch. But we are really trying to. Uh, Sort of start start the game over six times or, or so in, in a game in a single game to get that tight loop like a roguelike. yeah
1: and and I think one of the things too is uh, Vincent talked a little bit about plans. Uh, so for for me personally, there's kind of two elements of of the restart. One is uh, knowledge that I've gained by going through the loop. Uh, knowledge or skill and then the other is kind of uh, like character progression right the fact that uh, we have a mechanical advantage when we started the loop now that we've upgraded and so plans are a are both in our game so a plan is a card that you play in kind of a timeline that shows what you're going to be doing during the day so for example this plan might say i'm going to move my officer into a beach Mm -hmm. and when i play that card that upgrades my ability to do something. Uh, so that has changed my capabilities within the loop, but it also, now that it's in my timeline, it's there until it's, it's replaced or changed. And so I've now given my opponents information for future loops to say, Mm -hmm. Hey, here, I know every day at noon, John is going to move an officer into the beach. And so as you're upgrading your own capabilities, your opponents are also learning your strategy uh, and how you're going to take your path. And so I like that kind of double layer of uh, every time you are upgrading your capabilities, you're also giving your opponents information that they're going to learn from
0: for future loops. It kind of reminds me of like that scene in uh, Bill and Ted, like at the end when they're basically having like, a little time fight. Like, I'm going to go back in time and leave a an anvil over here. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to go back in time and leave a trampoline right there. And so <laughs> on and so yes. on. Yes. <laughs> I guess, in terms of, like, how long does, like, a Like, how long does, like, a typical turn last? Because I know for a lot of board games, some of them, like, turns can take, like, minutes at a time, some of them just be a few seconds. Like, how long does, like, a general play of your game last?
2: Well, the game lasts about, uh, an hour to an hour and 15 minutes. Roughly. Mm -hmm. Um. At the higher player counts. Um. And there's only uh, a limited number of turns per game. so each turn is only gonna last, you know between uh, five to ten minutes, I suppose.
1: Okay. Uh, or wait, sorry, there's there's two concepts there. There's a there's a turn and then there's a loop. So mm-hmm. a loop yeah. is gonna be five to ten minutes. Uh, okay. but a player's turn, I'm generally gonna get to do four things within each loop. Uh, okay. So I have, Uh, four times during the day where I get to do something. Okay. Uh, And each of those turns is maybe, you know, 30 to 45 seconds. So I'm going to move my pirates here. I'm going to uh, attempt to start a fight with one of your crew. And so each set of actions is nice and and bite-sized for players. It's not like I do my whole day, then you do your whole day. Uh, But together they kind of uh, create one whole event and then we loop it.
0: Okay. And one thing that I wanted to bring up that we talked about earlier in the discussion on roguelike design and making sure the player knows that there's a reason or there's enough motivation to return to a game. How are you guys tackling that in terms of, I guess, replayability or just how much, I guess, variance is built into this game?
2: Quite a bit, actually. Um, So the board, if you uh, saw in the pictures, Mm -hmm. all the uh, sort of locations on the island mm-hmm. are modular. So okay. there's that outer ring, and they can all be rearranged. And there's an inner ring that can all be rearranged. And there's these these secret caves, uh, which all do something uh, unique. And so those will change uh, from game to game. So the, the island is going to change a lot uh, in between each play of the game. Then there's the event tiles. Uh, which are randomly placed throughout the island, which all happen at different uh, parts of a loop. So either they happen in the morning, or, or in the new noo- at noon, or at midnight. Um, those are all going to change from game to game. They'll be the same during that uh, game that you play, and so you can use that knowledge to affect your future turns. But every full game loop loops within loops here. Every full game loop those uh events will be uh in different places on the island and occurring at different times and so there's uh there's a lot of uh i know you can sort of over exaggerate like how many different combinations Mm -hmm. uh there are but there really there really are a little a lot of different things that that come up in the game and so it should be a very it should be a, a very close to unique experience each time you play
1: yeah um and, and that's something that was important for us when we were going through the development process is we we started actually with a fixed map that was the same every time you played. Mm-hmm. And if we think about some of the joy of uh, the time loop is learning the environment and learning the island. That was something that we realized that was kind of missing uh, psychologically as we went through the development process and we added it in. So we started adding these modular uh, systems, so we have uh, anomalies that happen as the you know the time loop starts going haywire. We have these event tiles that are different to game to game, and we have the actual the the environment of the board itself uh, is going to be different every time you play. And so, uh, kind of taken together, that's going to let you have a, a very different challenge, uh, right? When you talk about learning and exploring inside of a system. Uh, we've set the initial conditions of that system. The the kind of seed of the game, if you will, is very different uh, play to play. And then each uh, session where you're looping multiple times is going to let you explore the limits of that seed.
0: Okay. So essentially, the seed or the initial board is what gives it like the variance in the amount of options. And then within the loop itself, or within the actual play, as you said, you're able just to kind of test and play around with that individual or that single moment in time and then of course when you start a brand new game you get a brand new set of conditions a brand essentially get a brand new toy box to play around with each time you play and and that like right there is like roguelike design 101 in terms of getting that feedback loop working
1: yeah definitely um so we're, we're super excited about it. It's a, it's a very weird game. And so, uh, you know, because we're weirdos. And so that's something we're just really excited to share with people and, and see what, what people say when they, they have this experience. Because it's really very different from a lot of other similar strategy board games in the way that it's loops kind of present itself.
0: Great. So I know you guys have to get going in the next few minutes, so we're going to wrap things up here. I just have a few quick questions just about the board, about the game itself, and then I will let you go. So the first one, when is it? when will it be available for people to buy?
1: Uh, the game is coming out on, I believe, November 20th uh, of this year uh, from Tasty Minstrel Games. Uh, the best way to uh, get a copy is if you have a local board game store uh, to go in and ask them to pre-order <laughs> you a copy, uh, and they'll they'll get one uh, right at release. Uh, should be available in local game stores nationwide. Um, as of now, they don't have any online pre-sales or similar, uh, though that may change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, if you are attending a board game geek convention in... Uh, Texas in November that will be the official uh, launch and release of the game and uh, I will be there uh, running some demos and si- saying hi so you know if you want me to
0: add some weird special loop <laughs> stuff to your game I'll, uh, I'll write some in for you <laughs> <laughs> and how many what's like the uh, number of players who can play at like one time
1: yeah uh, it's two to five players and again as, as Vincent mentioned it's about 60 to 75 minutes
0: great so, I think with that, my final question for both of you is, do you have anything you want to like, end the cast on? Anything to say to the fans? Anything about time and games? You know, the floor is yours.
2: Well, uh, I'd just like to say thank you so much again for having me on. I uh, really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, and I hope that, uh, that if, if your uh, viewers pick up the game, that they, they tell us where they find the fun in the system that in the box that we present to them, because uh, it's really what, what this is uh, been a lot about for me. So really excited to see what players think when they, when they pick it up.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Same. Thanks again for, for having us on the show. Uh, if you have any questions about uh, anything that we covered in this topic, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Das Brieger, D A S B R I E G E R. Uh, and, you know, happy to uh, kind of answer questions or chat time loops, send you all my fi- favorite time looping movies, uh, <laughs> whatever it is
0: that, uh, you want to know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for you, Vincent, what's your Twitter? People want to follow you there.
2: Uh, pretty much everywhere. I'm at megahertz, that's uh, it's M E G A underscore H I R T Z. it's on YouTube, Twitch, where I stream speedruns. on Twitter. That's, uh, that's where you'll find me
0: great all right well um as always sean you are always welcome back on the cast whenever you're free again we can have you on for another discussion and vincent once again it was a pleasure hanging out with you tonight and if you'd like to come back on again you know have design topic will travel kind of fits around here we can talk about almost anything but yeah definitely Again guys, thank you for coming on. Best of luck with the game. We'll include links to it. There'll be there should be links in the description for those of you watching this record right now. But as yeah, we do need to do a speed running a cast about speed running in general. That'll be very interesting. I mean I have a lot of
2: a lot of opinions on the topic, so just let me know.
0: Definitely. But we're going to wrap things up for tonight. As always, for people watching us live or recorded, thank you for tuning in. If you're new, be sure to check out our Discord channel. It's open to everybody. There is a link to that in the description. You can follow me on Twitter, at GWBicer. And if you are a developer or want to come on to talk design, please get in touch. We're always looking for new guests. But as a quick note for people watching live, our nightly stream will be slightly delayed as I go get a late dinner, but I'll be back on in a few minutes. But come back for daily discussions on game design here and on Game Wisdom, where you're in the art and science of games. And until next time, take care.